Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello there. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host, Peng Fei Zhao, speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. Today, I'll be talking with Barbara Dennis from Indiana University on her new book, Walking with Strangers, Critical Ethnography and Educational Promise. Although this is my first time to introduce Barbara's work here, she has been a long-term good friend and a colleague of mine. I've always found myself being inspired by her writing and research. I'm particularly impressed by her new book, Walking with Strangers, as it documents with great details and transformative insights how educators in a Midwest school district strive to fulfill the educational promises that they have made to an increasingly changing student body. The book was fresh off the printer in October 2020. In the book, you will read an incredibly candid account of the challenges, struggles, achievements, and failures that this group of educators and researchers have experienced in their work. What I have found most interesting is that although the fieldwork of this critical ethnography was conducted before President Trump took the office, now looking at it in hindsight, it speaks into the contemporary conversations around immigration, deferred action for childhood arrivals, and the experiences of dreamers. Readers could easily discern that it was exactly the discourse and power structures that the author interrogated that gave rise to Trump and Trumpism years later. In the year of 2021, as the United States at the stands again at the historical crossroad, it is particularly relevant for us to read this book and reflect on the topics of hope, change, and failure in American schools. Now, let's turn to Barbara, the author of Walking with Strangers. Hello, Barbara. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Pangfei. Nice to be here with you. And also, congratulations on publishing such a beautiful book. Oh, thanks for saying that. Well, you know, I will just get started with my uh, first question. Uh, could you please uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. I'm a professor at Indiana University in the Inquiry Methodology Program, and my work is primarily centered on the development of critical methodological concepts and practices through the integration of empirical engagements and theoretical insights, my empirical work is always substantively enacted through equity and social justice values. I guess that sums it up. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that aligns so well with uh, what the book Walking with Strangers um, talk about. And how did you come to the study of Walking with Strangers? Well, maybe I should call it you know, um, the project you gave it a name, IU Unityville Outreach Project. Well, actually, the project came to me. Um, oh, cool. And it, yeah, and it unfolded into a study oriented through the goals of educators in Unityville. So educators in that town contacted me to help them um, with a challenge they felt like they were facing. And um, so the study got was kind of enmeshed then in the life of that educational project that was really aimed at um, changing the educational practices in the district so that they were um, better for transnational youth and migrant youth. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about, you know, the challenges that the educators in Unityville, um, they were facing at that time, and how this is re- was related with, you know, the expanding rate of uh, transnational youth in that local community. Sure. So um, I tell this story in the book. One morning I got to my office and there was a okay. phone message from um, uh, in the book. And um, the message was basically uh, about um, the district having a lot of what newcomer students, they called them, who didn't speak English very well. And um, they really wanted somebody, the school district wanted somebody who could work with the students. And at the time, I was teaching multicultural education and diversity courses for pre-service teachers. And that's how they got my name. So I called them back. I didn't reach Roberta, but I left a message saying I'd be happy to come if you're interested in really changing schools. Uh, I wasn't really interested in fixing students, which was how the original message was sort of couched. But I said, call me back if you want to fix schools. And they called me back. And um, so I went to the school district with a team of about seven or eight grad students, a multilingual, multinational team of people. Uh, It was really interesting because the district, first people were saying, can you just tell us what to do? And I said, well, I've never been here. I don't know really anything about your school. So first thing we need to do is learn about your school and what's going on and what's working and what people are thinking. And so that's why we formulated this team of um, multilingual, multinational people to work in the school, uh, beginning with just kind of figuring out where they were, what, you know, what the teachers thought, what the parents thought, what kind of practices were involved, what the youth thought, uh, and try to locate ways we maybe could transform the schools. So we worked with some educators, a core team of about eight to 10, I think, at the beginning. And then, like I said, about seven or eight um, of us from Indiana University. And uh, we spent uh, about a semester just gathering information, talking, beginning to have conversations. 
And at the end of that period, we put together a report for the school district, which was about 200 pages long. And that's that's very uh, long. Yeah, it was really extensive um, bit of work, uh, which is not published in the book, although there are some quotes from that original report. But then from that report, we decided to launch this more extensive project, and that's where the 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 sort of study integrated with the project work um, really uh, took root. Mm-hmm. But I'll just say, you know, right from the very beginning, there was this inquiry focus that is, you know, I'm not going to walk into a district and tell people what to do. I really want to work with people, create opportunities for dialogue, and find ways to work together toward um, goals that people in the school might develop for themselves. Yeah, so that's very interesting because you made this clear distinction between fixing students and fixing schools. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what you see the distinctions are here. Like why fixing students is not your focus or you're not interested in it at all and why fixing schools should be the goal. Sure. I mean, I do have a lot of um, passion and care for students, but I think when we're talking about schools and schools succeeding, that we're really talking about a lot of sort of practices and systemic issues within which students get embedded. So even our ways of talking about students fall back on kind of the practices of the institution of schooling itself. And um, mostly, I mean, students might want and need support of one kind or another. And certainly that was the case with the students in Unityville. There were things that made life better for them. And we were interested in um, hearing from them and supporting them in the ways that we could. But uh, they didn't really, they didn't need fixing. They just needed good schooling opportunities for the most part. And um, I think, you know, when schools think about uh, students that are within their purview, I think we have to figure out how schools can meet the needs of students, not how students can meet the needs of schools. So, so yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the students. It sounds like, I mean, those students, a lot, many of those students were later, later they would be called DACA students. That was my impression after read the book, after reading the book. And I don't know if that was correct or not. And also at that time, maybe the, even the term um, DACA students, was now invented. And so, so I, I just wonder if you could say a little bit more about this group of transnational youth. And that is also linked with the title of the book, right? Like Walking with Strangers and this idea of newcomer students. I wonder like if you could unpack us, um, for, like unpack a little bit more for us, you know, the layers of being a stranger in that um, local community? 
Sure. So uh, the kids were quite diverse, but there were um, a, the largest group of um, transnational migrant students were Spanish speaking students, many of them from Mexico, but not all of them. There were came from a lot of uh, Central and South American countries. There were quite a few Japanese students as a group because there were Japanese um, plants and in Indiana and executives from Japan were sent with their families to Indiana to manage the Japanese plants. And so there was a Japanese Saturday school for Japanese students scattered about the state. And um, those students tended to be from middle-class families. Um, the students from Mexico, Central and South America tended to be working class, from working-class families. Then there were a number of just um, family-connected students. So there were some Palestinian students, some Taiwanese students, Russian student. Anyway, there were quite a few that were just um, their sort of one family or two families. Um, but the students from Mexico, Central, and South America comprised the largest number of um, newcomer, quote-unquote, students um, in Unityville. And those students were uh, had been brought to Unityville with their um, families, um, and they did become that first generation of DACA recipients. The students that were in the high school at the time were um, there under George W. Bush's um, policy that schools were not allowed to ask the um, documentation status of students or their families. And so for the first time, students entered U.S. public school systems without the school being able to legally establish whether they were there in a documented way or not. And so this paved the way for a generation of students to obtain education in U.S. Uh, public schools and get to the end of that education path in the 12th grade and not have um, some kind of legal documentation status. So, uh, yeah, so they that group uh, comprised what is a large group of youth in uh, the U.S., of um, kids who went through U.S. public schools um, and are now um, in this kind of um, limbo between not having uh, legal documentation but also not having any other home but the U.S., So now, I mean, as we look back, there is really this historical development of this um, feature of, you know, how the evolution of the different policies and maybe also the discourse of the um, tensions um, revolving around this um, um, revolving around this group of youth. I mean, all like 
uh, more generally speaking, the transnational use, they were developed over this period of time when these group of um, youth you worked with, they came of age. I don't know if this would be a good way to say that, but it sounds I, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, so so how, um, how did the um, encounter of the two sides uh, look like? I mean, it sounds like there are this um, uh, quote and quote newcomer, newcomer students and these pretty um, habitually practiced schooling system. And what was the um, what what was the issue there? Right. So it's very interesting because the teachers, well, most of the educators, so administrators and school counselors and um, the professional staff, largely characterized the problem as, you know, these students don't speak English. But our project team, which included um, people educate Unityville educators as well as our IU um, students and myself, we really characterized the problem as the teachers not having empathy for the students. And both of those issues really created uh, a very difficult learning situation for the students. The students often, at the beginning, really described um, very depressing emotional uh, experiences for them. And the teachers at the beginning never talked about the students as if they were their own students. The students were completely othered and the teachers didn't trust them and didn't really have any way of connecting with the students and didn't seek out ways to connect with the students. Uh, the students really posed a problem for their thinking of themselves as successful teachers. They'd been really successful with the white kids in their school and the handful of black kids in their school. Um, at least this was their self-perception. And they just, um, these kids really threw a monkey wrench in their sense of what a classroom looked like and how a classroom functioned. Uh, but from the team's perspective, we really thought that the, that the big gulf was not a language one only. It was really an inability uh, on the educator's part to position take with the newcomer students, uh, even on an emotional level. So even on a level that didn't require them to have a good uh, linguistic relationship. Um, can you give us some examples? I know like in the book, there are numerous very detailed and very um, touching, I would say, examples about this. Can you just maybe pick one or two that you, um, uh, that you feel like most, um, one or two that maybe brave one? Um, of the teacher's inability to be compassionate 
Oh yeah, I'll, like um, why I'll, the example of why the IO team identified this was the issue here, as opposed to you know um, the inadequacy of students' English language. Right. So one thing is there was um, a lot of bullying going on at the high school more than at the other schools, but it was also happening at the middle school. Um, and the teachers just, the teachers thought that somehow the Spanish speaking students deserved the bullying because they were separating themselves from the white kids. Like, for example, they would sit together um, in the lunchroom. But of course, all the white kids sat together in the lunchroom too, and nobody thought anything negative about that. So there, the, the teachers were um, consistently interpreting things like the Spanish-speaking kids sitting together in the lunchroom as um, those children being bad and resistant and, um, you know, not accepting of um, their white peers. But the kids were teased a lot and, and getting together at lunchtime was like a safe haven for them. And the teachers didn't really get to a place for quite some time where they interpreted the students need to be together with other Spanish speaking kids and other kids who were suffering in similar ways as a form of support. Um, the teachers just uh, interpreted that in a really negative way as, um, you know, an example of how the kids were, just choosing, and they would use the word choose, they were choosing to isolate themselves and separate themselves. And then, of course, they were going to get bullied and teased and they weren't going to fit in. Like fitting in was all their responsibility. So it sounds like here in this specific example, the teachers were trying to blame the victim. Yeah, they did that a lot. And but, you know, it was interesting because they were, you know, people that you thought, well, if they could begin to see what the students were experiencing, maybe they would have some empathy for them. But their initial interpretations of the kids were almost always negative and That's didn't take into account the experiences that the that the kids were having, not just the experiences at school, like being bullied, but, but, you know, being in a community where your family was considered an outsider, um, where people in your family were hiding, um, you know, things like that. They, the teachers didn't stop to think about how challenging that might be for a kid. Like these are kids. I see. I mean, at some point of the book, you mentioned that, you know, people in Unityville thought of their own town and their school as very um, monocultural. Right. Yeah. And that this probably was one of the examples to see, you know, how um, 
there is there seems to be this um needs to really think beyond this monocultural um setting or this monocultural practice right and not just that i mean i feel like they policed the monoculturalism like it wasn't really as mono, it wasn't monocultural actually but they used that idea to police behavior and to um, hold tightly to uh, the kind of privilege and hierarchy that, um, you know, the people who'd lived there a long time enjoyed in the community. So basically they perpetuated their monoculturalism. Yeah, actively in a conceptual way. I mean, it wasn't factually monocultural, mm-hmm. but there was a yeah. belief system that it was monocultural. And that, those two things are really different. Yeah. So, yeah. So at some point, I know in the book, like in one of the chapter, you try to make this distinction between, you know, the Unityville local community actually indeed had a very, very diverse history, especially right. in relation to migration, Right. And right. then there is this perception, the local perception within the community about this monoculturalism. Right. And I think particularly amongst the, the, the people who'd been in Unityville a long time and felt like the town was theirs. You yeah. know, a kind, there was this kind of privilege of ownership that... Right. Um, that they enjoyed and that that people worked hard to hold on to. Yeah. Then I think this is very interesting because because the project uh, collaborated by both, you know, the IU team, the university team, and the local educators. This collaborative project really aimed at our spearheaded with to this um, monocultural uh, monoculturalism perpetuated by the school system uh, within the community. And, and this is very different from like what people usually do for if they do ethnography. For example, you know, um, I don't know if like how much our audience um, um, are familiar with, you know, ethnography as a genre of a way to design research, but really like a typical traditional ethnography would be an ethnographer go to a uh, goes to um community and very often this community is um uh, marginalized and disadvantaged the community and they go there to document the, the um people's life there and they um they uh interpret and they're trying to you know make sense of their um like everyday practice so to speak but the here the description and the interpret interpretation play a larger role as opposed to you know for the ethnographer to seek some transformation within the community and and what we've seen here in this ethnography is that you and your collaborators you are explicitly sought to make some change together and wonder like if you could say a little bit more about you know taking this transformative orientation as an important part of your work and what that entails 
Well, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> let me just, let me do a little bit to kind of point in a direction. I don't really have like a map for how to do that, but I will say a couple of um, things at the outset. One thing I really believe is that life is always changing. Things are always changing. And I think I've always experienced a kind of tension with ethnographic writing in, a, in its traditional format that seems to flatten time. And, right. Like um, to try to capture something static. Right. And I think... I think things are always changing and that, and I want to be intentional about who I am in that change. And so the idea of transformation for me is to be an intentional participant in the ongoing life of a community or a group of people I'm with. And that intentionality means that I'm, I'm always wanting to hold myself accountable to being a part of becoming more just, more free, more democratic, more loving than the moment before. And I think there's like, for me, there's, that's true whether I'm teaching or doing ethnography or having tea with a good friend. So part of my orientation toward, you know, research is just the way I orient myself in life. And I, I know we all have to work that out for ourselves. And that's just where I, I've landed. I, I'm motivated to be part of the good in the world. And I don't believe there's a way to walk around being neutral. I think, um, the best I can do is to be intentional with what I am able and aware of. And so when I enter a project with people, I don't, I don't walk in with the idea of like, I want to change things. I just believe that change is already going to happen. And I want to be in a conversation with people about, being sitting with that change, being intentional with that change, acknowledging that change, um, and having an ethical orientation toward, um, you know, contributing to a better understanding and a better enactment of justice in the world. So it's like, in some ways, it's... It's not like a map of what to do, but it's a way to be open and a way to, to think about what one's work is. And I never, you know, I don't do this by myself. So it's not like I even have a clear sense of what is the most just situation with Unityville. I didn't, I've never ever been to that town even before my first visit there. At, which was like weeks after that original call. And I uh, didn't know very well the people from IU that I was, you know, traipsing down the road to this town with. And I didn't know the people in Unityville at all. So I, I didn't have any idea what transformation would look like. But I knew that 
It would involve dialogue, openness, a sense of our own fallibility, a willingness to be honest and acknowledge when we've made mistakes and learn from them and, you know, listen to one another. We were a very diverse group and there were times when I, I felt really discouraged because I thought, you know, this, um, pull toward monoculturalism was so at, at, at odds with what brought me joy in the project. Like I remember one, um, the first day we were ever in Unityville, there was this moment where I walked into a large room and our students from IU were meeting with the various aged students in small focus groups, um, Unityville students, transnational students, and they were talking in the home language with the students. And I walked in the room and I thought, Maybe for the first time in my life, I felt like I was surrounded by the kind of school I'd always wished we could develop and we could have. And I felt so much joy with that image. Kids were really animated. They were, they felt heard. You could see it in their faces. The students from IU were really connecting with these young people. The team of educators that I was spending most of my day with, um, were really passionate about making schools better places. And I felt so much joy in that moment. And it was really at odds with people who believed that the best thing for the school and for the community was this push toward monoculturalism and everybody speaking English and everybody acting white and um, everybody you know, holding to the same value system. And, and so I guess what I'm, I'm saying is, you know, when you open up a table you, and you walk into a space, you don't know what the transformation means and you can't chart it out ahead. Um, and the space is always, the transformation is always going to be uneven and different. And um, I was transformed in ways that are really different from, Roberta, who became my good friend, um, she, you know, her transformation was different. The school's transformation, of course, was more institutionalized and and different in that sort of way. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for sharing that. I think after talking with you, I mean, I, I've always been drawn by this transformative orientation of the work. Um, you uh, presented in the book, but after hearing um, what you just shared, I feel like you know this. Um, I have I had a better understanding of what that transformation means to you and to you know people um, of people of the group here got involved in this uh, project. I wonder if um, again I'm I'm trying to you know. Um, Give our audience more example, like ask for more examples um, on behalf of the audience to some degree. I feel like because I think the examples always um, go a long way um, in a conversation like this. And maybe you know something like you mentioned before about this um, bullying situation um, in the high school. So, what are some of the efforts you um, 
you did in order to you know improve uh, like change that for example yeah that's a really that's a really good um example there are of course lots of things that that we did related to that but one chapter in the book really talks about our use of theater of the oppressed um, with small groups of teachers and what we did in that um, particular uh, activity was we had we took some bullying scenes from our data and we shared them with groups of teachers about six to eight teachers at a time and we had the teachers for about three to four hour block can't remember the exact time frame but anyway we shared the bullying scene and we um, engaged in this reenactment of the scene so each of the teachers took on a, a different role and the remaining of us where we sat in a circle around where the action was happening and um, we would, you know, take turns uh, in different roles. Anyway, I, I describe that in quite a lot of detail in the book, but um, just to make the example brief here, when people, when the teachers first started enacting the scene, the scene had two Latinas walking down the hall, and it was set at the high school when the classes were changing. So there were two Latinas walking down the hall, and then um, a bully uh, and a teacher standing in the hall watching the kids as they're, you know, passing by, going to their next classes. So when in every uh in every case, every focus group where we did these, uh, this bullying scene, the teachers always started off by wanting to change the least empowered people in the scene. They wanted the Latinas to act different. Can't they walk faster to class? Can't they stick up for themselves? Can't they do this or that? And I, and I would say, well, let's act it out. Let's try it out. And it was, a, you know, it failed, of course, it failed. And then um, the teachers would suggest things like, well, can't there be a white kid in the scene who sticks up for the Latinas? And my high school, there were white kids who stuck up for the minority kids, teacher would say. And so I said, well, let's try that out. So someone would go in as a, a white kid. It took several, like longer than you would expect times of reenacting the scene before the teacher the teacher in the scene saw herself as part of the scene this bullying scene was persistently conceptualized by the teachers as something that happened between the kid getting bullied and the kid who was doing the bullying and they didn't see themselves as a part of it at all even though the teacher was standing there in the scene the teacher would say they were aware it was happening, but they weren't stopping it. And, and that's, teachers actually told us that in the interviews too. They said, oh, I know they're getting bullied. And I would say, how do you know? Is, is someone talking with you about it or what? Oh no, I see it. And then I would say, well, what do you do when you see it? But nothing. They didn't do anything. So they didn't see themselves as part of that bullying scene. 
eventually they did. And kind of the first way teachers would sort of start being active in the scene was to be really authoritarian. They would like stop, catch the bully, and then threaten to send the bully to the principal's office if they didn't change. But they always felt like they had to actually catch the bully doing it or they didn't think they had anything to do. But the real transformation in that scene came when one of the teachers, this was like toward the end of the period, one of the teachers enacted something radically different. And this is where I think you begin to see real transformation. We started the scene as it had been going on, let the two teachers acting as Latinas were started walking down the hall, the bully started to come up. The teacher acting the part of the teacher walked over to the Latina students and started speaking Spanish to the students. And it totally changed the scene, completely changed the scene. It not only put the teachers in a new way of acting, but it acted against the school's English only policy, against the idea that monoculturalism was the answer to everything. It meant the bullies couldn't get to the kids because the teacher was actually talking with the, the kids, you know, intended to be bullied. And the Latinas walked onto class feeling like they had been recognized. So it changed the way the teachers in that scene saw themselves in relation to the bullying and and how they conceptualized what they could do. Wow. So, yeah, so it was a real powerful yeah. moment, but it took a really long time to get there for the teachers, you know. And actually, I, that wasn't a transformation I thought of necessarily either. I had, we were doing a lot of sort of breaking the um, English-only policy rule ourselves as a team we were talking spanish with kids and in the cafeteria and in the hallway and um and taiwanese and japanese and um but i you know when i saw the teacher enact that it was like the whole group of us felt changed we all felt like a new door had opened that we could walk through together yeah this is a really good yeah So that story I tell in this story where I'm talking about using creative methodologies because I talk about the way in which like using theater is just one example of a creative methodology, but it engages participants in like imagining what's possible and not just being stuck in what thing, the way things are like admitting and starting with where things are but then trying to imagine what could be different. And I think that begins to open this space for transformation, but it doesn't happen happen quickly. I mean, it took a long, it took, you know, a couple of hours to get to that place. That's really cool. Yeah, that's a very powerful example. And thanks for sharing that. And that really makes me think about, you know, um, as you said, how time consuming this type of work could be. Um, There must be this, you know, very complex relationships 
that you need to navigate in this setting. I mean, as a researcher and to some degree a stranger to that commun local community and to that school system, and thinking about you know the relationship with the teachers, um, administrators, the community members, and most importantly, the students. I mean, the diverse students body there. I like. I wonder how um, you handle that. Yeah. So um, the relationships were different, of course, for each of us on the team. We had different bonds develop, um, and different relationships emerge. I was primarily. Um, kind of situated in conversations with educators and with white students. And uh, so a lot of my, uh, so my closest relationship was with Roberta, who was the uh, person who had left the original message on my machine. And um, it's a person I, I got to be quite close with during the time of the study. And, um, but I didn't, I wasn't equally close with all the teachers. Some teachers didn't uh, like what the project was doing. And I think those teachers tended to focus negatively on me. So even though it was a team effort, um, there, I was a very visible outsider. And um, so people who weren't happy with what was going on, I think they didn't warm up to me very much and and that's okay um so i guess i'm saying that to say like it's you know the relationships that develop over time are uneven and um i didn't try to be everybody's buddy i did try to be open-minded and to really listen to people when they talked with me but um you know i didn't have coffee with everybody. I, there were uh, people on the project that I was definitely closer with. Uh, and then other people on the team were closer with other people. So there were, um, one member of our team was really close with the Taiwanese students and actually remained a, a long confidant for those students. And what she was really important to the emotional well-being of those to brother and sister Taiwanese students in the school. There was another member of our team who was really close with a group of teachers who were working on a peace curriculum. And he met with those uh, teachers every week for a year and they enacted a, a intercultural peace curriculum and he was, very close with uh, those teachers and also with a number of the Spanish-speaking um, male students at the high school. There was another student of ours who worked very closely with Japanese students. Actually, we had two students who worked with the Japanese students at the beginning, but one of the students stayed a really long time and actually was ended up being hired by the school district as an ENL uh, aide to the ENL classroom and she learned Spanish also so that she could uh, relate well with the Spanish speaking kids as well. So Japanese speaking kids. 
And she became a real important um, person for the students uh, at the high school over time. So it was wonderful that we had a large team because I think um, we were able to relate with different groups of people really well. And um, I would say over time, I had a really good relationship with one of the high school principals, with the elementary school principal, with quite a few of the teachers um, across the, the three schools, the elementary, middle, and high school, the three schools that we were working with. Um, and we had other people who got close with the parents. So, so there was definitely a very rich um, kind of tapestry of relationships that were developed and sustained over time. And uh, that school, some of the personnel in the school district changed, but a lot of the people that we worked with um, stayed, were there the whole time. So it just allowed us to, to build relationships um, over time. So that's very, um, I mean, I just want to ask, uh, explore a little bit more on this because you mentioned this unevenness of the, um, of the relationship. And that really um, allows us to glimpse, you know, the resistance that you and the team experienced in this transformation-oriented research project. A collaborative project. I I wonder, like, um, if you would like to share with us some of the moments that you feel like you know um, there must be some like the moments like you feel like mm, there it won't happen. I don't know if you have had that moment. Well, there's there were definitely some standout moments. Um, one of the moments that I've written about before that was really powerful for me happened at the high school. There was a white male teacher at the high school who was making things particularly difficult for the Taiwanese um, female student at the high school. And that student was working so hard to be a good student and um, was persistently picked on by the teacher. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that lightly. Um, the teacher would call out the student. I mean, like when we were there observing the class, so it wasn't hearsay, um, would, would persistently pick on the student when the student couldn't get her words together in English quickly enough uh, to answer the question. And we had worked with a student to advocate for, um, you know, some alternative teaching approaches. Um, but the teacher was really resistant and said it wouldn't be fair to other students in the class if, um, you know, I treat her special. Though he was treating her special, he was certainly treating her differently than he was treating anybody else in the class, but he just didn't see it that way. And um, we got kind of to um, an impasse, and it felt like this 
uh, Taiwanese student was really getting hurt in the class emotionally. She was feeling really depressed and she wasn't succeeding in the class. She was nervous every time she went to the class. Um, so I just, I thought, I don't know what to do. I, I had talked with him. I shared transcripts with him. I said, is this, you kind of see what's happening here and what do you think about that and he was proud of himself and would say things like I don't want these foreigners in my school or my community so I you know it was hard for me to like him I didn't like him and I didn't like the way he was treating our student and I went to the assistant principal and I said that students being mistreated in his class and um, we need to get her out of the class. And the assistant principal was um, really reluctant to reprimand the teacher at all. And of course, I, 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 it was it was a quandary for me in the sense that you know the teacher had allowed us in there, had allowed us to record the class. I had you know, through the IRB promise, the study wasn't going to bring the teacher harm, if I could foresee that. Um, but anyway, the assistant principal didn't want to do anything to the teacher, but was willing to move the Taiwanese student out and put the student in another person's class and, and then agreed not to place any more of our transnational students in that teacher's class. Um, before I went to the assistant principal, I talked to the teacher and said I was going to do that. So it, it, the whole thing just felt like a big mess, you know. I, um, and the teacher was happy to have the student moved out of the class and was happy not to have any other transnational students in his class. But teachers in the public school system don't get to choose their students. And it really bothered me that this was where we landed, that this was kind of the place we ended up um, in this situation. And um, the relationship with him was really um, odd on my end. So he felt good about the outcome and I felt bad about the outcome. The student was in a better place. I think she felt good about the outcome. But when I would see this teacher in the hall later, even years later, you know, he was very friendly to me. Hi, Barbara. How's your project going? I was called it my project. How's your project going? Um, you know, how are you? Welcome back to the school. I have some pretzels. Do you want some? I mean, he was just very, like, nice in that kind of way to me. So um, that was a relationship I think never really felt okay to me. Yeah, I hear you. That's, I, I mean, I read the story in the book, and I also feel like it's, it's really not a light story to, to tell. No, it's, it's really hard to talk, even yeah. talk about it. And, and I want very much for, you know, it's hard also because I'm only presenting this teacher in this one kind of way, and everybody at the site you know, is we're, we're really complex people. And, um, you know, he was complex too. And I, I'm, 
presenting him in a really simplified way, but I was really angry about the situation and it just was very difficult for me to feel any warmth toward him and to kind of find um, any measure of goodness in him. It was really difficult for me. And I, I had to work at that because um, I, I don't want to treat anybody as if they're, there's no, you know, goodness in them. And I know that people are complicated and I know he's complicated and, and there were a lot of things that um, he did well, but it was a very hard relationship for me. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And I, I, I feel like that's also the part of the book that particularly moved me when I was reading that because I think there is a, like the level of honesty in the book. We just don't see that that much in a published, um, you know, academic uh, product. So, so, so like there, there were places where you explicitly talked about methodological failures. And that really made me think a lot. Like, you know, would you consider this as a um, failure? Of what, I mean, now we're talking about this almost, you know, it's like from a hint side and also it's like 10 years, probably a decade after what had happened to the students and to the teacher. And what does this mean to us when we still like try to make sense of these failures? And, and, and I would say, you know, we still can see things like that around us. Right. So I think, you know, one of the things that I, I've really tried to, um, to uh, navigate, I guess, is um, appreciating that we're all in it together. You know, I, I can't make people be more open-minded, for example, or empathetic, or whatever it is I wanted him to be in relation to the, this Taiwanese student of his, I can't force that. And there's something really beautiful about that, that we, we can't force people to be. Um, and f- navigating being um, a person in the scene who doesn't have total control alongside being a person in the scene who has ethical commitments and isn't going to sit and watch a child get harassed by a teacher without doing something about it. And so I think for me, it's those, those moments strengthen us in a way. They help us learn to do it better. They help us see what to focus on, what to care about in the moment. And I felt really sad about the story, but I really cared about the student. I didn't care as much about the teacher. Um, And I really did care about the student. And 
So on the one hand, I mean, it's, I don't think of that necessarily as like my failure because I didn't really have control over that teacher, but, and I felt like I was as honest and, you know, as capable as I was at the time. Like I brought everything I could to that situation and it worked out the way it worked out. Um, but I think what was important was to not be a bystander in the school, to not just observe what was happening and keep walking or keep standing by, but to, you know, really be an advocate with the student for herself and, um, you know, locate where my ethical action was seated. That's, I mean, I, I don't know, like what, if I were you, how I would do it alternatively, but I, I really appreciate what you have done starting from this caring position. And um, I think there is also a certain level of privilege that wrapped into that, the privilege of like you being a white researcher, a pretty senior white researcher being able to talk with that white teacher. Right, for sure. and. Um, this sense in which, you know, he, it was clear he felt like he could relate with me. Now, I have no idea how he would describe me to other people, but he, he kept acting as if I had done him a favor, as if I understood him. And I kept feeling like I must not understand him because the way he's behaving is just, I don't know, so incomprehensible to me on a certain level. Hmm. But I think he connected with me through like my whiteness, through my like having been a teacher, my knowledge of schools, my ability to be pretty fluent with what was going on in the schools, um, you know, like in that kind of way. Yeah, that's that's definitely a lot of things that we can um, further talk about and a lot of things for us to think about, you know, um, as the, like I, that, that story really um, stayed with me for a long time when I was reading the book and when I was thinking about, you know, this scenario and make, trying to make the connection between um, what's going on in Unitville 10 years ago and like the current um, cu cultural and uh, social political conditions we are in. I mean, obviously, you know, now we are in a very different social political context today. And we, are, we could reasonably argue that the country is standing at another crossroad, crossroad and we are expecting more changes. So like 
I feel like it's a really interesting timing to publish the book two months ago. And what, like, what would what would you say are some of the things that you would like you would like people to take away today when they read the book, or maybe in other words, why do you think people still need to read the book? <laughs> and be concerned about what had happened 10 or 15, 15 years ago in this Midwestern town, Unityville. Yeah, you know, there's definitely one of the things that really kind of re-motivated me. So I lost interest in writing the book. I'd always been kind of interested in telling the methodological side of a long ethnography, critical ethnography. Um, but I'd lost motivation for a bit. And then when we started having all of this political othering of um, transnational people on U.S. soil and, and the talk of the wall and just, you know, um, criminalizing uh, discourse about people, um, it really resonated with some of the things that we'd heard early on in Unityville and, and even toward the end, but with fewer people uh, because there had been changes. Um, and it was almost as if what we had seen a decade before had really found its political stage in the recent years and um that was it was so powerful almost you know word for word some of the the things that we'd heard in interviews were now common political banter and uh that felt to me like motivation to share the stories of unityville because there was some change um slow and hard fought and inconsistent, but the vision of how things can be different, I think, start to come through. And it doesn't mean, like I said earlier, it's not like there's a clear path, but I think once we begin to see that we can imagine new futures, it's the engagement of our own imaginary uh, linked with action we imagine possible for ourselves that will start to make changes. It's not by following what some other school did. So I think in this case, there's a sense that um, you read the book, you, you do begin to develop empathy toward the young people, I think, at least I hope that happens. And you begin to see how the teachers also developed empathy for the young people and could imagine schools looking differently and I think we I think that's something we we need now too we need to imagine what it means to be part of a transnational community a world community that we're all in this life together and that's a fundamentally active and moral um, relationship we have with one another in the world and I think seeing what happened in Unityville can spark um, a hope and uh, 
an idea that transformation is possible. Indeed, we are recording this in the in the middle of a global pandemic, where mm-hmm. uh, um, in which we lost a lot of lives, and especially the disadvantaged communities were influenced much more here in this country and also in other parts of the world. And I feel like the kind of imagination and the kind of hope that you presented in the book, it's something that we are still very much needed today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, not, you know, again, because it's because of the story, I think it doesn't give answers, but it opens up conversations, really. And when those conversations are opened up across diverse perspectives and language groups and age groups and and um, different life circumstances, it's only then I think that our our imagination really blossoms as a community. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And with that, I now I'm interested in where your imagination leads you to your current work. I have a number of really interesting projects, but um, as I know is true of most academics. But one of the projects that's the most similar to the Univille work is a project I'm doing with LGBTQIA plus youth. So um, this is a youth-led community organization. It's not based in a school, but it's a group of young people who Uh, provide it's a support community for youth but also an educative community in that their outward facing mode is to provide educational trainings for youth serving professionals particularly for for teachers and I work with those that youth community I've been involved with that youth community for four or five years now and um they are actively engaged in um, helping teachers create educational spaces within which gender varying and sexual, sexually diverse youngsters can thrive. And they're very um, agentically oriented in the sense that they have the they have the ideas. They want to work with teachers on those ideas, and um, so I think this effort would also be described as a critical participatory ethnography, which is how I describe the work in Unityville. And um, I'm working alongside the youth uh, as they work together and as they deliver these educational opportunities. And I think um, that project is really dear. Uh, to my heart. I have a project, a long-term project going on in Uganda, which is um, working with Ugandan colleagues who are seeking uh, to develop a liberation peace psychology um, in the country and are working with young children to establish uh, meaningful ways of transforming communities for peace. And that's another really big long-standing project, a project I've been 
involved in for a for 10 years now. So those are two really long standing projects that I have going on. And then another one I'm working alongside you with is a project with our feminist research collective on collecting the life stories of beloved women. And in yeah. that project, we're, we're narrating stories with women uh, we love on their lives. And um, that's a digital project that is also participatory and ethnographic in nature and um, seeks to invite women from all over the world to participate. Yeah, I mean, wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I really look forward to um, having you again to talk about, you know, um, your other projects like the, the LGBTQ um, um, a youth project, the youth, um, how do you call it? I think you have a name for it. Uh, uh, the, the youth group um, uses the pseudonym Chroma. Uh-huh, right, yeah. Chroma, Project Chroma. Right. And, yeah, <laughs> and also the uh, project um, you are doing in Uganda. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating. And of course, our collaboration on the Feminist Research Collective, the Women We Love Project. I'm really looking forward to um, having you uh, share with us more about your wonderful work. And uh, for today, we have taken such a long time from you. And again, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoy um, listening to your um, ethnographic stories. And um, thank you for taking your time to uh, share with us your thoughts and your, all the challenges and all the insights. Thank you, Pang Fei. It's lovely to have a conversation with you, and I look forward to the next one. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.